And you have people out there who believe that that it is their duty to participate in something they call jihad. You've heard that, right? There's this idea of, of dealing with the heretics. Hmm, who do we think of normally when we hear about dealing with heretics? Who do we hear, think of? Who was dealing with heretics historically? The Catholic Church? Right. Well, if I had my pictures up there, you'd be seeing some lovely pictures of some crusaders. There were fellows that would dress with a white uh, cloth draped over them with a big red cross on it, and they were known as the Knights Templars. And uh, they participated in the Crusades in the 1100s and 1200s, early 1200s. Um, they participated in warring for the cause of God, they claimed. Uh, they were stationed in Palestine. Uh, uh, a lot of them, uh, and they were given the commission to guard the temple, Mount, which uh, had, of course, been, the temple had been destroyed, but uh, they were there as the knights that guarded the temple. And they uh, led all of these crusades, a lot of them against the Muslims, which originally, by the way, um, prior to that, they'd been just Islamics uh, from the line of Ishmael. Okay, and that's not a bad thing. They followed the Torah. They were people of the book. Uh, what happened was in the, in the, in the four to six hundreds, uh, you had this growing movement of Muhammad who came along, and uh, basically he was the slave boy to a former Catholic nun who knew that a woman could not have any impact in that culture because women were not allowed to speak, basically. And so she, being an implant from the West, came and got herself a slave boy who she used her power, her, her brains, her money to promote him as a warlord, basically, as a great leader, even though he was illiterate, okay? Um, makes you wonder where the Koran came from, right? He's illiterate. Anyway... And he says that an angel gave it to him, basically. It was given to him by an angel. I'm sure she looked like an angel. But anyway, the, the thing is, is that you have these people um, who uh, were there in Palestine who were warring against people to the east who were following Muhammad, and they were massacring them, okay? Brutally, gruesomely. Uh, men, women, and children. It was, it was horrible. And, and so uh, the, nation, the nation over there has a good reason for hating what they call Christians because they identify all Christians as Catholics, basically. In their mind, if you say you're a Christian, you're the same thing as a Catholic. And so that is the problem. Uh, but thank the Lord that in modern times, Seventh-day Adventists have, become, have come to be known among, uh, among the Islamic nations as people of the book referring to the Torah, the Bible. Um, so we are not being classified, Seventh-day Adventists are not being classified the same as other Christians, and we thank the Lord for that. Uh, but there, are, there is a segment of the religion over there that is just as, as um, 
warring and uh, anti-heretic as the Knights Templars and the Crusaders were. And they're the jihadists. And so you have the same thing playing out on both sides. You have bad guys on one side, bad guys on the other. Both of them think they're following God's will. They both think that they're doing what God wants them to do. Now, <clears throat> making this a little more personal, um, bringing it up toward today, in the, uh, in the 1400s, you ended up having a man who got three ships. And if you remember the three ships, they had sails that were white canvas with a big red cross on them. Huh, interesting, huh? And he comes to America, Christopher Columbus, and brings with him this same idea that there's these people that are not worthy of living, basically. And so they slaughter them all. I know that my wife, you know, she's from the Dominican Republic, and when Christopher Columbus and his guys all landed there, it, they made short order of the natives. The natives really were wiped out. Uh, there were, there's a few bloodlines that are still there from where there was some intermarriage that happened, but the pure-blooded natives are literally obliterated, do not exist. They, 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 um, historians believe that they were completely done away with in the first hundred years. Um, so anyway, there, there's a certain mentality that goes on there. Um, and you think of how this plays up into our day, of how, how uh, Americans treated the Native Americans, how they've treated you know, the African Americans, how they've treated others. Uh, and each group seems to somehow justify in their own mind thinking that they're doing God's will. They're, they believe that they're somehow following what God wants them to do. And it's, it's just not right, of course. Now, we know that... Uh, there, is, there, there are things that God wants us to do, things God does not want us to do. My question right now is, do we have a Christian duty, something we are obligated to do as a Christian? Is there something? You think? Oh, you can speak up. Okay, so there's something we should do. Uh, does the fulfillment of any duty... Any particular thing, like this war campaigns or something like that, does something like that uh, save us or help to save us, salvationally speaking? No, it doesn't. Uh, Galatians 2, verse 16, it tells us, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So doing something is not going to save us. Doing something for God is not going to save us. And in fact, of course, what the Bible principle is, is that we serve him because we love him, because he saved us, right? That's, that's the basic principle. Okay, so then you say we do have a Christian duty, but what is our Christian duty? Hmm, very, I'm hearing some good answers out there. I think some people are a bit ahead of me. Let's take a look at Psalm 77, verse 13. All right? Psalm 77, verse 13. Okay, in Psalm 77, 13, it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So, if we're to look for what we're supposed to do, what God's way is, what he wants us to do, if we want to follow his way, follow his path, 
we've got to look to the sanctuary, right? Now, this is where I really wish my slides were working. <laughs> it makes it a lot better. But um, for anyone who has ever seen a depiction of the, of the sanctuary that God commanded Moses to construct, um, I'll uh, explain for you kind of how, it, how, how it's laid out. You have your north, south, east, and west. Over to the east is the gate. You come through the gate into a thing, an area called the courtyard, which is where the altar and the labor are. Then you go through a gate into the actual sanctuary itself, the building, which has the first compartment, which is called the holy place, and the second co compartment, which is called the most holy place. Now, all of this is symbolic. It is the plan of salvation in picture. That's what God's given us. And the concept is that when you look at what's in the outer court, that's a symbolic of what happens here on earth, what was to transpire here on earth, both in Christ's life and in our life. Uh, Christ, he is the Lamb of God, and the Lamb was to be brought and to be killed and sacrificed on the altar that was in the outer court. That is, the sinner was to come and acknowledge his need of a substitute, someone to die in his place, and that's what we acknowledge with Christ as our Savior. Then there's the laver, which was a, basically like a large basin of water, and the priests would then wash there in the laver. The idea was that that represented baptism, being baptized for the sinner, and for the uh, priest, it represented him going to heaven and the water represents the, you know, you hear about the, whole, the, the latter rain, the early rain, the Holy Spirit raining down on, on them at Pentecost. That water represents the rain of the Holy Spirit to, to fill our lives, purify our lives, that kind of thing. Um, so you have the, the sinner who is baptized and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, then the next phase is going into the holy place. And in the holy place is, are the symbols that represent our Christian walk, what we are to do in our Christian walk, and uh, what Christ is doing for us in heaven at the same time. Christ, he tells us, um, he, well, let, let me uh, make mention of the first. The first object that you find when you come through the entry of the, uh, of the holy place is the lampstand. And the lampstand was to shine and give light to the whole of the sanctuary. Uh, and it symbolizes witnessing for Christ, okay? Then you have on the left, oh, that was on the, on the left hand. Then on the right hand, you have the table of showbread, which is a symbol of consuming God's word, okay? And then straight ahead, further, um, at the end of the room, you have the altar of incense, which was a symbol of prayer. Your prayers ascend up like the smoke of the incense, all of these are symbols that are clearly explained in Scripture. Um, the thing that to notice is that the only outward duty that you see depicted there in the Christian walk is the witness, the, the candlesticks. And the candlesticks, they are to be lit first when the priest enters. Then you had the officiating at the table of showbread, which is consuming God's word, and then you have going to the altar of incense, which is the prayer. It's interesting because, see, this is what it represents for the sinner who has been saved. 
He comes in and he lets his little light shine. He consumes the word of God, the bread, you know, because it says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he offers his petitions to the Father um, through Christ. Now, this is interesting because Christ, he tells us in John chapter uh, 8, verse 12, it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Okay? So Christ, he is the light, but then he says, ye are the light of the world. He also says that. So he is the light of the world. He shines through us. We are the light of the world. So he is the light. At the same time, Christ also says that he is the bread that is sent down from heaven. And then we also know from the book of Hebrews that he is our high priest, our mediator, the one that presents our petitions before the Father. So these symbols all represent Christ, and his work, but also represent him working through us. He works through us through letting his, his light shine through us as a witness, uh, letting his word fill our lives, letting um, our petitions be presented acceptable unto the Father. So this is our Christian duty. Now, Paul, he speaks um, to the Ephesians about this issue of not walking in darkness. And this was our opening text, Ephesians 5, 6 through 12. And the key, I, the key part I want to get to, well, I'll go ahead and read it, but the key portion is in uh, verses 8 and 10. But I'll read the whole thing. It says, in, starting in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Okay? We don't want to have, be deceived with empty words. And that's what's going on out in the world. We see that a lot. And, and it's discouraging sometimes as a Bible worker to see how people are more eager to hold on to empty words than they are to the Word of God. And I see that so commonly, it's, it's a little annoying, <laughs> honestly. That people would rather take what some person wrote about the Bible than take what the Bible says itself. It, it's really amazing. But it, it says, okay, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Now let's just read that without verse 9 there, the parenthetical phrase. It says, walk as children of light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Yeah, this gets interesting. I could go back to uh, what I was speaking of about the Knights Templars, about Christopher Columbus, about all of these things. You all do realize that there is, even still today, an order of the Knights Templars that's based in Switzerland. That is where the headquarters for the Knights Templars is. And who provides the uh, army for the Vatican? The Swiss Guard. Interesting. 
And who holds all the money in the world, basically? Switzerland. Hmm, and who's the family behind that? You have the Rothschilds. Do you know what Rothschild means? That was a name that was assigned to a Jewish family. It's not a Jewish name. Rothschild means red shield. Roth, which is in German rotten, means red, and shield means shield. Okay, pretty obvious there. So you have red shield. You look at the flag of Switzerland. What is it? It's a red shield, isn't it? Anyway, it all gets interesting. Um, the thing is, is that you have organizations that are secret orders, secret organizations that do do things in darkness, who do work in secret. And the Bible tells us, if you read on a little bit further there in Ephesians 5, it tells us that they should be exposed. Some people uh, wonder sometimes about my uh, thinking, but uh, I believe that the Bible is clear that there are things going on out there that are done in secret, men who are doing things that think no one sees, no one knows. They think the Lord doesn't know, but the Lord knows everything, and he's foretold it in his word, and uh, we shouldn't be blind to it and, and to realizing that there is a devil out there who's out to get us. Um, <clears throat> now, the main point that I wanted to look at here, though, is this point of it says, walk as children of light, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So as we walk as children of light, we need to look to find out what is acceptable. In what way is our walk as God's children to affect those around us? Okay? We look mostly at, you know, you have the witnessing, the uh, reading of God's word, and the prayer. But what does this really mean as far as an impact on those around us? Paul helps explain this when he was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 to 15. It says, reading from the King James Version, it says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Okay? So here's the words comfort and edify. Edify is a building up, encouraging, basically. Uh, building someone up. It says, even as ye, uh, as also ye do. Verse 12, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the love for their, for their work's sake. And now notice what it says. And be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward how many? Toward everybody, all men. See that none render evil for evil upon any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to how many? To all men. Okay, so this is what this is supposed to look like. This is what's involved here. You may have heard it said, let go and let God. Have you heard that saying? Let go and let God. The Bible teaches us to patiently bear one another's burdens, to patiently wait on the Lord to do his work in our own lives and even more especially in the lives of those around us. Okay? 
It is not our place to lord over others as little demigods or something. We will only end up making God look bad. That's the sad truth of it. Okay? Because his work of sanctification is a perfect work, and he is long-suffering. The Bible tells us that. So he has a lot of patience with us. Okay? But are we as patient as God is? No. So when we are dealing with people, we often tend to make God look bad. That's a problem. Okay. As we learn to wait on the Lord in all things, he will revive a humble spirit in us. Because you see, it's this prideful spirit, this of like, oh, I'm a little better than you are. You ought to be up where I am kind of mentality that tends to come into us when we take on this role of being little demigods. Okay? So now, you probably see some allusions to our current day in this, but what does this have to do with working like the devil? What does this really have to do with that? Okay, let's take this step, this, con this whole concept, a little step farther. Maybe getting a little too personal. I don't know. I hope not to be. I'm just wanting to share some from, some from my own experience. I have often heard older folks speak of their children who want nothing to do with church. Now, while it's true that there are many reasons why people end up not going to church, I have found some common denominators very often. Uh, I've spoken with the children of many of these types of parents, and uh, the parents are good church-going people, and you just wonder, now, why in the world aren't their kids in church? Because their parents seem so lovable. Hmm. Well, I would dare to say that too often I have heard from the children a very negative picture of God um, as was served up to them by their parents or by others in the church as they were growing up. Okay? We know that the Lord depicts himself as our heavenly father, right? As children, we gain our picture of God to a large degree from how our parents portray God to us. I have heard through the years too many accounts of parents and others using the devil's methods to bring a, an outward conformity to the lives of young people. Now, uh, I have a little piece of paper that I gave to one of the uh, elders. Did I give it to, I think I gave it to William Ray. Do you have it? All right, well, deacons, would you go ahead and pass that out to folks? It'll kind of help with this last little portion of the, pre of the uh, discussion here. There's a handout here that talks about the difference between God's methods and the devil's methods, okay? Now, what you'll notice on this sheet when you get it is that the devil has methods, just the same as God does. And uh, the devil uses these tools, guilt, shame, and fear. Okay, those are his tools. These are working against God's methods. Okay? And one of the first passages you'll see on the sheet there is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And it tells us, And now abide... Faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Okay, and in the King James, you'll see it says charity, which charity, uh, you'll notice that on the sheet, I explained that that final step is love in charity. Um, the reason is because we, in, in English, we think of love as just love, all love. You know, I love a kitty cat. I love a puppy dog. I love, you know, jelly beans. I love, you know, love is love is love. That's not, in, in you know, the Greek and the Hebrew, there is more specificity. I'll get the word out, as to what kind of love you're talking about. And charity is something that is given away without expecting anything in return. Okay, it's a free gift. And that's the type of love that it's speaking of here that God has for us. A love that doesn't expect anything in return. Okay, it just is given because that's what God does. He is. Now, this is interesting, though, because uh, Jesus, he had some words for us in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So he does ask us to do something if we love him. Now, this is not a condition of him loving us, and that's the point. It's not like because we don't keep his commandments, he's not going to love us. He still loves us. But he's asking us if, if we love him back to please keep his commandments. That's the thing. Um, too often we come at it all backwards thinking that if we can get people to do right, they will somehow end up loving God. You understand? Instead of if you love me, keep my commandments. Instead, it's keep my commandments so you can maybe someday love me. You see? Um, from the methods that are used to get people to do the right thing, a little manipulative sometimes, um, we are often seen as judgmental, dictatorial, and hypocritical. Okay? But this isn't what the work that God has asked us to do. Now you get the title of the sermon, okay? We are depicting an improper picture of God as our Father. Does our Heavenly Father want enslavement, subjection, and submission, or does He want our love? You see? And you can have both sides of the ditch, you know, both, both sides of the road, the ditch on both sides. You have those who are very conservative and fanatical in a conservative way, and they want to bend everybody to do what's right on the outside, regardless of what's going on inside. And that is superficial and not productive. It doesn't help anything. But then you have people on the other side who are liberal. They are fanatically liberal and that anything goes, and there's no rules, and no, nothing to m monitor anyone's behavior or, or to check anybody's outward expression of their, you know, uh, what do you want to call it? Their um, self-important perspective. <laughs> you know, their own self-esteem self liberated self. Uh, they, can, they can inflict their, their uh, will on everybody and anybody around them, and, and we all just have to put up with it. You know what I'm saying? And that's a mentality you're seeing a lot in young people 
you know, it's like it's my way or the highway, and I don't care about anybody else. And uh, it's just not right. So there comes this point of, of discerning where is the line between where my where, where your liberty and my liberty meet, okay? Uh, anyway, so based on how we may have treated others, including our children, they may have gotten a wrong idea or a wrong picture of God. They may see God as something of a tyrant, you know, as unreasonable. Now, I want to share with you in closing... Um, as we're wrapping this up, a statement from Mrs. White that gives us the attitude, what the attitude of parents should be as they represent the place of God to their children, okay? Because she clearly, clearly states, and I believe the Bible supports this fully, of course, that children do respect their parents in the place of God in their lives as they're growing up. You know, that they're supposed to look to their parents in that way. Um, the book is Child Guidance, and it's found on pages 374 to 375. Here's, here's what is said. She wrote, if they fail once, talking about children, and think of this, put yourself in the place of a child of God. Think, this is God speaking to you as your heavenly father. If they fail once, twice, or thrice, Censure not. Already discouragement is doing its work and tempting them to say, talking about the children, to say, it is of no use. I can't do it. This is not the time for censure. The will is becoming weakened. It needs the spur of encouraging, cheerful, hopeful words, such as, never mind the mistakes you have made. You are but a learner. And must expect to make blunders. Try again. Put your mind on what you are doing. Be very careful. And you will certainly succeed. Now that's God's attitude toward us. As Christians, we all claim to be followers of Christ. Do we ever see Jesus lording over people in the Bible? Uh, or throwing people under the proverbial bus? Do we see that happening? Okay, consider how Jesus treated those who had broken the law, the civil law, but also the, the commandments of the Lord, the Ten Commandments. Look at the woman caught in adultery. She was guilty of both, breaking both, right? The law of the land said that she should be stoned. Was Jesus the first to act according to the law by taking up a stone? No. This can show us a bit of the perspective of God. The beloved disciple John understood the love factor more than I think anyone else in the Bible when you read his, his writings in the, in the Gospel of John. Um, he understood what was the heart and mind of God, this love. And you see it in John three sixteen and verse 17. I'll just re read it. It says, For God... So loved the world. Now, you notice that's so loved. And I've heard the illustration made that, you know, a doctor, he uh, was unable to, to save the life of a child, and the parents, 
he overheard them saying on the other side of the curtain after he'd left them alone with their childhood passed away, saying, I loved you so much. And you begin to understand something of what this means when God says, when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, this really drives it home. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen? Amen. It's not about condemnation. It's not about bending people to your will. God is doing his work, and his work is one of drawing people, right? He says, I will draw all men unto me. It's his love that constrains us, Scripture tells us. We love him because he first loved us. That is how God operates. That's how he looks for us to operate. So we don't want to be working like the devil for the Lord. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Our kind Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the love that you have shown toward us, Lord. That you don't treat us even like our earthly parents sometimes do. Lord, you reason with us. You are patient with us. I think of the story of the prodigal son, how the father stood there day after day looking for his son to return home. And when he saw him coming over the horizon, he ran to meet him. Lord, I just am so grateful for how you have loved us and how you wish for us to show that same kind of love, that same kind of care for all of those around us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen and encourage us to fulfill our Christian duty in letting our light shine, letting your light shine through us, letting us partake of your word every day and continually keeping our hearts in tune with you through prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts, the opportunities that you give us each day in being able to be faithful to you. And we just pray, Lord, for your strength and your spirit to enable us to do so. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.